Into the Archives with Peter Fleming. A quest for the lost children's television classics of Peter Fleming. Presented by me, Peter Fleming. This week, episode... Um, food and Drink. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Café Fleming. Peter Fleming here, your chef, maitre d', manager, proprietor, um, well, whoever holds the most power in a restaurant of television, that's what I am. Have a seat and I'll take your coat. Maybe I'm a waiter. Uh, now, I know I was planning today to look at my attempts to develop a radio version of Vision On, the BBC's highly popular programme for children with hearing impairments, but unfortunately I've realised most of the material I have to illustrate those attempts really works better if you can see it. Uh, instead, I've prepared a sumptuous feast for you today as we look back at my various BBC programmes about food and drink. An enviable banquet with dishes that were exported far and wide. So perhaps we'll be able to get some back as long as they haven't turned to mush. Uh, genuinely a concern with film. Fine televisual dining awaits. So stop looking at the menu. You're having the lot. This is... Peter remembers. Well, one of the first things we do in life is eat and drink, a two, two of the first things. So it's an experience children always knew a lot about, and which I realised would be a fine source of inspiration for programmes. I started out very close to home, or rather close to school, with Chaos in the Canteen in 1966. Uh, this was a programme about a group of children who'd had enough of the boring meals they were being fed at school and took over their canteen in a tapioca-soaked rebellion. The trouble was, once they were in charge of the menu, they realised each of them was a fussy eater about a different food and had to keep adjusting it every week. It made viewers at home more mindful of how to balance their diet and also helped raise a lot of early awareness of nut allergies. Uh, such was the backlash against a particular episode. Later on, we tried to raise ethical issues and make children think about where their food was coming from in 1973's Food or Foe, where steaks grew to giant size and started hunting down butchers to cook and eat for themselves. It's frequently cited as the direct cause of a surge in child vegetarianism that year, in fact, yet never did the cows thank me. Of course, the trouble was the following year we repeated the idea, but this time with giant carrots and cauliflowers. Uh, all the vegetarians just stopped eating, uh, caused a surge in malnutrition. That was our last series for that one. But the real titan of my food programmes was What's for Dinner with Cathy Calloway, which ran from 1968 to 1972, one of the first children's cookery programmes, and we were very lucky to find such a talent in Cathy. She could be warm for the children when she needed to be to reel them in, but it was always tempered with an austere, matriarchal edge. She had the air of someone who was truly in charge of her home, really gave everything a sense of meticulous order and uncompromising control. It proved very popular, uh, with one viewer in Salisbury writing to the Radio Times about it. I've still got the clipping here, in fact. Uh, anonymous letter just signed a devoted housewife, uh, but she described the series as, quote, the only cookery programme that's better than Fanny. High praise indeed. <laughs> that should be a capital F, I think. Yeah. 
Anyway, as the series progressed, Cathy wanted to expand things, and uh, she started looking into table manners and etiquette as well. Uh, we were more than happy to, and gave us more insight into her home life, and how she was around her children, and of course her husband Leslie. In particular, the ways that she helped them keep their appetites and their general behaviour disciplined. The press got quite snide about that. Uh, suppers and suppression, they called it. Suppression, indeed. Nothing could have been further from the truth, as we saw when Cathy was brought down by a torrent of scandals. Uh, most of them not food-related, admittedly, though uh, one or two food did enter into it in uh, quite unseemly ways. Uh, the series had to end after that, and the master tapes were actually boiled. Sixth Floor decreed that was the best way of purifying them. But I'm hopeful that copies could be out there of all those programmes, as I'm pleased to say they were sold far and wide. And on that note, here's a way you can help finance my new Global Archive expedition in this commercial message. The Peter Fleming Cookbook is a mouth-watering collation of celebrity recipes, cultivated over decades spent working with them, or going through their belongings when they weren't looking. See and taste a new side to so many actors, presenters and personalities, expressing themselves in a way you'd normally have to live with them to experience, or at least anger them. Try a witty spin on Baked Alaska with Graham Crowden's Fluffy Peaks. Have a culinary adventure with Valerie Singleton's Mystery Flan. Or help the children kick back and really relax with Kathy Calloway's infamous uh, uh, trademark barbiturate booyah base. Yours for just £25 plus 200% tip. Warning, many recipes were not written down and had to be remembered from years ago by the editor. Consult your GP before ingesting any of these delightful dishes. Order now! <laughs> and if I may say so myself, it's an indispensable addition to your kitchen. That gives you a sense of some of the troubles poor Cathy was having, too. I actually have the original recipe for the bouillabaisse, and based on her annotations, the children do come across as a handful. But now, let's turn to our next course as we delve into... Peter's Private Collection. Well, a programme didn't have to be about food for us to come up with edible merchandise for it. And as it happens, I have in front of me now one of the birthday cakes we brought out to promote Is It My Birthday? It created a different one every year. And even though it's a room temperature cake, it sold like several hot ones. I think this one's 1969 vintage. I've kept it all these years waiting for the right moment to try it. And I think today's the day. You might ask, is it going to be edible after all these years? But going off what consumers said at the time, uh, might be a slight improvement. Well, let's cut ourselves a slice and uh, and find out. It, uh, pretty hard, actually. Well, it's, uh, it's not too big. Maybe I'll just take a bite out of it. Oh, my God, it's heavy. Uh, very hopeful, is it? Um... Oh, well, try some of the icing at least. That'll be... Uh, oh, no, that's, uh, that's turned to dust. Well, if you've any idea where slices in better condition might be found, uh, get in touch. Oh, or any episodes, of course. Yeah. Well, uh, moving that to one side, you'll notice I've mainly looked at food rather than drink so far. But that's about to change with this thirst-quenching dip into the audio archive. Audio Archive 
Well, it's about drink as much as it's about food, anyway. But what I'm talking about is 1971's Inside the Orange, everyone's favourite adventure story set in a piece of fruit. Inspiration struck for this when I sat down and read James and the Giant Peach for the very first time. When I'd finished, I put that book down. I sat there, and I thought to myself, what a load of nonsense. The very idea that a peach could magically grow to giant size like that, along with a bunch of insects, and provide a vehicle for some kind of adventure? No, 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 I thought to myself. What would be far more sensible would be an eccentric grandfather with an interest in science shrinking himself down by mistake, along with his granddaughter and her brattish next-door neighbour, accidentally transporting them all into the inside of a normal-sized orange at a market stall and befriending a family of talking pips. There, I can believe that. You can listen for yourselves now how it turned out with this rare off-air recording from the start of episode two. What happened, Grandpa? And what on earth are those? Good gracious me! shrunken down. Can you understand us? Where are we? You are inside the orange now. And we are the pips. Oh, what a hideous racket. Yes, stop that. Pipe down. All this juicy orange flesh, all this colour around us. And look, you can see the pith up the other side. It's very sticky in here. Still sweet, though. Hey, you know what to do if we get hungry, don't you? Quiet, you, you pips. We're not going to hurt you. Yes, we don't eat pips, you silly things. We're not animals. They must talk like this all the time. Lucky we're usually too big to hear it. My father will deal with them. Don't be a cruel child. Your father doesn't care about you one jot. <laughs> Grandpa, shouldn't we find a way to get out? Well, one thing at a time, Jill. First, we must, uh... Yes? Well, find a way to get out. What's that? Why is it shaking? Uh, I think someone's thinking about buying it. Hang on tight, everybody. <laughs> well, what an adventure was beginning there, eh? And over the next few weeks, the series followed the journey of that orange as it was bought at the market, taken into a house, moved to a fruit bowl, nearly eaten by a naughty cat, put in a lunchbox, taken to school and neglected, taken back to the house until the final episode, when it was violently juiced. Well, don't worry, though. Jill and her grandpa escaped unscathed, and the other characters got what was coming to them. God, I was very proud of that one, you know. I'd, I'd love to see it again, especially that wonderful, colourful set. Uh, but sadly, the BBC threw out all their copies. And yet, it was sold to other countries, so there is still hope. Uh, paperwork here shows that the full series ended up at least as far as Nigeria on black-and-white film, having bicycled its way through quite a few different countries. And a letter made it through to the BBC from its last known resting place, uh, with a station in Kaduna offering to send the episodes back. Uh, to which the BBC replied... Uh, Oh, God, no, just keep all of those, thank you. Which makes me think they could still be there. 
You never know, do you? Well, we're coming towards the end of our meal, so I think it's high time that we order coffee and have a read of some of your own correspondence. In... Messages from Beyond. Well, there's a lovely blend of correspondence this week with a double shot of, uh, of two letters. Uh, firstly... Rochelle has written in, in response to last week's audio archive clip of Dr. Straitlaced. Uh, at least I think that's what it's about. Uh, unfortunately, she's written the entire letter in French. Um, if anyone wouldn't mind getting in touch to provide a translation, I'd be very grateful uh, if you could just write in and uh, enclose a stamped addressed envelope. And speaking of stamped addressed envelopes, I've received one, along with a letter from Gemma in Chichester. Uh, she writes, Dear Mr. Fleming, I couldn't help overhearing in last week's episode of Into the Archives. Were you overhearing, Jimmer? I wanted you to. That's why I put this out. That you'd received a letter that might be from my old friend Roger. Oh, of course I hadn't thought of that. I assumed everyone had their friends round to watch floating Mr. McAllister all over Chichester. There we go. I have enclosed a stamped addressed envelope and a note with my details. If Roger is listening to this, perhaps he could do the same and we could be put back in touch. Many thanks for your help and good luck with your expedition. Best wishes, Gemma. Uh, well, uh, yes, of course, I'll do that for you. Yes, Gemma, if uh, Roger wants to get in touch. And, uh, and since I'm helping you track each other down, you do what you can to help me track down more of my programmes, eh? <laughs> Mustn't lose track of what we're all here for, but uh, love to hear from you and thank you for your good wishes for the expedition. Um, no check in that. Uh, no, no check in Rochelle's letter. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, well, uh, in spite of that, I think the time has now come to get the bill and see where we're up to with my travel totalizer. Now, the target was placed at £200 last week, but I've realised it'll probably come to a bit more than that in the end, so this week I'm increasing it to £500. And I can now reveal the current total raised for my Global Archive Expedition is... Minus £100. Yeah. I'm going to spend so much making these cookbooks. Uh, well, if you'd like to get in touch with leads on episode finds or your cookbook orders or just some good old-fashioned cash, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear from you at the following address. Peter Fleming. Foraging by the compost heap, round the back of Andrew's Garden Bistro, Dindale Road, Hebden Bridge, West Yorkshire, H... Uh, uh, well, to, to say the truth, it's quite a small place. I'm not sure if they really have postcodes here. Uh, just send it all in and I look forward to hearing from you. Messages from Beyond that's about all we've got time for on Into the Archives this week, but join us again next time when I'll be asking exactly what did go wrong with my 1975 game show Hunt the Fire Exit and just how balanced was the inquiry. Until then, my friends, keep up the search, keep in touch, and stay tuned. Into the Archives was presented by Peter Fleming. His archivist and producer of the programme is Tom Burgess. Music and sound were found in a skip in Made a Veil by Peter Fleming and remastered by Tom Burgess. Inside the Orange was written, produced and directed by Peter Fleming. 
The orange was designed by Barry Newbury and regularly moistened by Raymond Cusick. Oh, uh, the Daleks were created by Terry Nation. The clip was used with the kind permission of Fabian Morrissey and remastered by Tom Burgess. Special thanks to Eleanor Morton and Zoe Tomlin. This program was a Peter Fleming production for pan frying with shallots. It can also be roasted in its own juices.